All right. Welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. Like I said, next week I will be um, doing a lot of things and I will not be able to do a show for two days. So I thought that I could hop on and get um, an unconventional show. A lot of people have a um, an issue with understanding and coming to grasp with things on who, what, when, where, and what is going on. And now we've got this Israeli conflict. We're back into the you know Middle East uh, you know level of tensions that we were uh, prior to President Trump. Uh, we see the fire lit again. It has been lit again. A lot of people don't seem to understand how things work. So I thought we could uh, travel back in time together. So what better way to kick it off than with a time traveling song? <laughs> Maybe it'll tell you more. Investigate, follow clues, keep up to date. If there's a crime, I'm the one to save the world and have some fun. But when I hear that special call, I know it's time to leave it all. Get the clock, it's time to rock. That's what we are, because here's the thing. Looking Glass, for example, is a product that helps you go back in time and piece bits of information together. 
This is why you look back in time. So I thought today we could start in the 70s. This is going to be kick back, get your coffee if you're outside, grab your cigar, cigarette, whatever your choice of poison is. And uh, I want you to see a very a documentary that starts as something and ends as something else that not a lot of people have seen. And I want us to watch this together because it shows you how Marxism has crept into the uh, systems, our education system, but also talks about the conflicts that we see in the Middle East and what and who controls it. This is from 1970. Okay. So we got to travel back in time 51 years to make sense of what is going on today. And, and that's because those that are in power hold the pen to write history and rewrite history. This is why we see with every war, they take down statues, monuments, they burn libraries, Missing scrolls, this, that. Why so much on attacking knowledge and hoarding knowledge? Because knowledge is power. And the truth is never nice. No one is ever going to be happy because everybody has expectations. This is why... This is why it's very important to not have irrational expectations. Expectations are simply setting someone up for failure. What? Tori, don't you expect good things? Yeah, I do. And I'll tell you what, I'll age overnight if my expectation isn't met. Suddenly, I feel disheveled. I'm horrid looking. I am bitchy. I am upset. Everything's setting me off because I set expectation rather then take a step back and say, I'm going to take a look at this from another perspective. And you know what? That has helped because I'm a person that has seen so much that if it was a skeleton for every, every bad thing I've seen, you would need a 20 million ton forklift to just empty that closet. Therefore, rather than seeing it like baggage, I see it as stones where I build that little treasure trove of knowledge. Because the minute you start stepping back, you can see the pattern that all of these give. So here you go, guys. Kick back and enjoy. Star made 17 feature films. Breathless. Le Petit Soldat. A Woman is a Woman. My Life to Live. Le Carabinier. Contempt, Band of Outsiders, The Married Woman, Alphaville, Piero Le Fou, Masculine Feminine, Made in USA, Two or Three Things I Know About Her, La Chinoise, Weekend, Le Gay Savoir, one plus one. After the events of May 1968, Godard began working with the Ziegewehrtoff Film Group. 
In two years, Godard and the film group produced five films. A film like any other, See You at Mao, Pravda, East Wind, Struggle in Italy. During the spring of 1970, Godard toured America, accompanied by Jean-Pierre Gorin, another principal member of the Ziegewehrtoff film group. The tour was undertaken in order to finance the completion of their latest film, Till Victory, or Methods of Thinking and Methods of Work in the Palestinian Revolution. We think there is too many images, and as movie makers, militant movie maker, we have to try to work to 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 work with more the Hollywood system, the whole uh, ideology of the Hollywood system, uh, which is everywhere. It's to bring to the people a lot of images, and so many that you absolutely don't see nothing. Like here, you see a lot of uh, Vietnam uh, picture on TV, but you, you, you really don't see nothing on TV. Uh, about Vietnam, you, you see nothing, because there is too many. And so each one is cancelling the other one. There is too many. It's quantity and not quality. So we have to find again how to build a quality image because how to build quantity image uh, that we know. So we have to, to, do, to destroy what we know. And Hollywood is doing then a lot of image and no sounds, always same sounds everywhere. So we have to work on complexity from the sound point of view and to work on the simplicity from the image point of view for, for a moment, for a few years, for a few films, and then uh, we'll know where we are coming. That is it's just a, pragma a pragmatic, but it came from experience. Look what the enemy is doing. He's using a lot of image and uh, very few sounds. So we have to, to do ex the exact contrary for the moment. Besides, we don't, we don't make the same image that they make. We, we're not, no more going and fetching images. Um, we know that an image is an image and nothing more. So you have to build the image and to build it politically. That means a, a complete new process of making films, and a very difficult job. So it took us seven films to go some step forward at the point we are now. To, to quit fiction, to, to I mean the old fiction, and to go back to try to, to bring new fiction, because uh, of course images and sound are half of fiction. Yeah, it's not real, it's fiction. An image and a sound have nothing real. You can't touch it, you can't smell it. It's not reality, it's fiction. That's why in France very often they say, uh, we look at American, look at their democratic way of telling news. Not at all. It's, it, it's a deep way of doing things, but only in quantity, not in quality. Look, look at what happened with the war in Vietnam. You have seen uh, nothing. Well, I, I think I think we have seen. Is the people here? Is the people here begin even uh, middle class people, non politicized, non politicized at all? We began to say, uh, let's get out of Vietnam. Uh, it is just because they are losing. That's all. It's not. They have seen a hundred of uh, horrible images on screen for years. For years and years and years. Because the people who are in Vietnam is. But just because now they are realizing they are really losing something, so why stick up to something which is of no more fun for the moment?
Let's well, get you, out. Once you say, well, on a relative basis, but once you say that on American television, we've, saw, we've seen more of Vietnam than you saw on French television, yes, by Algeria. Because when it's better to see no image, because when you see no image at all, it's enough to see one after. And that's what's happened in France. The, the lack of image was... Uh, you think it was beneficial, in other words? Strongly, more, strongly in, 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 in a way, in a way, yes. Because you don't, you don't get immunized to it, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, that's just like... Uh, Morphine or nothing else. Yeah. You have no. Yeah, you, but but you uh, come and see look, Nobody looks at TV, nobody looks at paper. Look at the New York Times tomorrow. You have a. You are not reading the New York Times. So why to produce it? Why to print it? Nobody reads it. I mean, entirely. So why? It's no use. Yes, it's a use for them. No, it's a use for them, of course. It's a quantity, it's a quantity world, images and sound, uh, it's like mixture, it's a quantity world. And since we have discovered that... Our cross culture is proliferating anyway, you have thousands of records, well, well, thousands why, of films. That's why, I mean, for example, that's why we can learn a few things, even in our very specific condition, from the Chinese Revolution. Because the Chinese Revolution, they have not hundreds of books, they have one which is good for everyone because everyone brings his own subjectivity into into well, this objectivity. Do you, do you see many movies now? Any movies? No more. No more. Risky point. The risky point yesterday. <laughs> what do you think is a risky point? Nothing. What can we think? What do you think of this ashtray? <laughs> <laughs> that is, it has cost a lot of money. Yeah, and we could have been living on it for years, doing hundreds of films. Six million, yes. Six million. Just to blow up frigidaires. What is it you object to? It is too Completely boring, pornographic, no use. I'm more interested to see the pornographic movie in 42nd Street. That's it, to the country revolution. Well, you see other, like Antonioni, for example, and Fellini, anybody that's doing what are in fact commercial films. There is no difference between uh, between Zanuck and Antonioni. Yeah, and and absolutely great. not. Period for you, or a period of adjustment, or readjustment, or something, and 
they want to know where the old, you know, Jean-Luc Godard is. Now, do you feel that you've always been moving into this direction, or is it something? I mean, do you do you feel any there's continuity with your own career to this point? I mean, do you feel that from Breathless to Mao there is a link? How can uh I mean, uh, if uh, if Rockefeller's son is becoming uh, one of the leaders of uh, the revolution, it will take him uh, more years, much more years, than uh, some black uh, children in a ghetto. But there is this feeling, uh, but 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 it, it's it's more likely that Rockefeller's son. You know, that a revolutionary would be someone like Rockefeller, oh, son, the son of somebody like that, then somebody from the ghetto. First, because I, I escaped when I when I uh, I was from a bourgeois family, a rich bourgeois family, and then I escaped from this bourgeois family by joining the, the show business. And then it took me quite a lot of years to discover that the show business was a bigger bourgeois family, even the one uh, I escaped from. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't even discover it, I just uh, felt it. And just now I'm beginning to discover what kind of bourgeois family it is. So I have to study, we have to study it and to even trying to escape it, but to study it and not pretending we can uh, create a liberated area as uh, like that, which I thought when I was only two or three years ago. Well, the classical question for revolutionary is ultimately, can it be, you know, can the actual medium working with a camera, can that be an instrument of revolution or doesn't ultimately you have to pick up a gun? Or a bomb. No, it depends on the specific it depends on the specific situation. The situation in France uh, is not at all the situation in uh, uh, Jordan and Israel uh, border, for example. Uh, it's completely different in China. Uh, completely different in Poland. Uh, so it depends on uh, what I'm thinking that in France. The main fight is uh, still uh, uh, the fight is on ideology, not not on armed struggle for the moment. People like the weathermen in France, we can't we can't disagree with. Uh, if I disagree with them in France, which I do, not against violence in itself, but the fact they are using it in a wrong way without having really, and it happens with them now that they are only all in jail, obliged to. To hide, which is uh, which is very bad. They should have hidden in the beginning, but not obliged by the police like the people here today. But here maybe it's different because the way violence is used every day by the dominant power, by Nixon and uh, the establishment, is really more open than in France. Or it's more, it's very violent too, but not really so open. I wanted to stop it right there for a second. If you heard them correctly, this is what they said. Listen carefully. They said, will the camera revolutionize how truth is done? All the people that have gone out there against the mainstream media and said, you're going to call us racist. You're going to call us potential Timothy McVeigh's. Fuck you. So that 
is how they see it. They saw that in the 70s. You understand? Will the camera revolutionize? I want you guys to be paying attention to this because this is very important. This is going to give you the insight. Listen to what they said. They lock them up or they go in hiding. Listen to what Andy Breitbart said. All the people that have gone out there against the mainstream media and said, you're going to call us racist. You're going to call us potential Timothy McVeigh's. Fuck you. War. And that. Because he, the gentleman, even said, this is what they're doing. The establishment, the Nixon establishment he was talking about. This is from 1970. They knew that the New York Times was rubbish. Who reads the New York Times? Why do they print it? They're telling you. Listen, from the 70s. Now, a lot of people change over 50 years. A lot of ideologies change. But this was the Project Veritas of the day. Open. So open that here the problem and, that's and what so that the country is much bigger here there is much more people there is the areas there is really different areas between uh berkeley has nothing to do with texas in two or three years we might have to uh not to make any more uh, pictures because we'll discover that by that time our our the important things would not be the movie. We will not to, to, to do to do a movie. I mean that the situation, the situation will change, and then the movie will not even become a second report, but uh, something not useful for the moment. So you consider yourself at the moment more revolutionary than a filmmaker. Working for the revolution uh, through filmmaking, through filmmaking, just like. A, uh, not not from making producing an uh, ideology, producing and, ideology, yeah, and producing a, a certain type of revolutionary ideology. Are you listening? The revolution started a long time ago. Yesterday, I tried to showcase to you where we're at in this revolution. We're at the end of it. It had already happened. The shift happened right after 1968. This is where it is, and that is where it began. And what did he say? We're producing the ideology. We're producing the revolution. The revolution has been on your TV, on your movie screens, in your ears as music, as cartoons, as newspapers since then. Now, this documentary is very, well, I'll just let you see it, but I want you to focus on what they're saying. They wanted to be part of the revolution. They said, we're not anarchists because that's what they call people who push back against the establishment. You guys heard about the Rockefellers, right? Wait, there's a lot more because they're going to talk Palestine and you're going to understand how long this has been going on. Slowly on, 
if we need uh, money, for example, and if we can only get money from America and not from from Italy, and uh, uh, from, then we have to to come uh, to come here. But knowing what does it mean for us being obliged to come here for that reason and being in this situation, then to react, in, to find out how to react. How to react means how to build a movie from that situation and to know what to speak of. Is it more important to speak of Enrich uh, Cleaver, of uh, Wall Street, of uh, I mean, the building of a Chicano party in, uh, in Texas or things like that? We just can't say two years ago I will have just chosen like that. Oh, I will speak of the building of the Chicano party in, uh, in Texas and thinking I, w I will have the revolution just because I was doing that. Now we are just realizing we can't do that like, like that. That's what we call a language of uh, editing before the shooting. That means thinking. And uh, after that, we have a part, an historical part, because uh, nobody knows because of the Zionist propaganda. Almost nobody knows what has really happened in the Middle East since the beginning of the century. Nobody knows about the Belfour Declaration. A lot of people still think that the Jews have the right, just because they were Jews and uh, crucified by Nazi, have the right to come into the Middle East and uh, just take the land or push uh, the people who want that land uh, out. So we are telling the story in a rather... We are trying to, to learn really uh, what Brett says. Uh, he's an actor because it will be too Palestinian two Palestinian fighter, girl and a boy, who, were, who are trying to tell the story of the Palestinian fight during uh, the beginning till now, till now, but not just historical dates, saying uh, this, at that date it was that and then what it, trying to say it in a, what Mao said, the logic of the people, and what is the logic of the people? It's to go from uh, fail to fight, fail, fight again, fail, fight again, till victory. And this is the logic of the people. And so we, there is the main date of the Palestinian uh, struggles in the beginning of the, the century. The date just said by the people, yeah, yeah, just two people speaking, two people speaking and acting sometimes. For example, for example, it's 19, uh, 19, uh, for Israel too. For Nasser, it was a victory on the West. And for the Palestinian, it was the, the first time the, the advance element of the Palestinian struggle began to realize in their own, in their consciousness, that they shouldn't uh, believe anymore in the so-called progressive Arab government, because the progressive. And this is the way, for example, the the, the boy and the girl can say. Suppose the boy say to the girl, "You are the Palestinian people. I'm Nasser, and uh, I speak for you." This is a uh, acting this is fiction but this is the way you can make understand uh, that nasa is not really speaking for the palestinian and so we go on through the dates, uh, the main dates are and the main dates are 1936 because 1936 was, that's the great palestinian revolution which is almost in the back and it ends on with the guerrilla warfare but it was crushed by the federalist and uh, the british and the british and uh, after that, 1965, which is the first uh, the first bullet shot by the 
people of El Fada, in the military branch of El Fada, which is the El Asifa. And it was a very uh, small target they were aiming at. But all their problem was that the sound of the bullet could be heard by the peasants. And uh, it developed till 1966 when the Israelis began to, to retaliate on uh, uh, villages on the border of Jordan. And at that time, uh, there were huge demonstrations, huge popular demonstrations all over the country to ask to back the guerrillas and to arm the, to arm the villages. So that's one of the dates at, uh, on, in which the ideas of the advanced elements of the Palestinian people merge with the feeling of the masses. It comes to 1968, which is Karamei. It is a battle of Karamei, which is the first victory over the Isia, over Israel ever ever achieved by Arab uh, people, and uh, not by the regular army, but by the Palestinian fighter. It was about 500 Palestinian fighter in a Karamei village, and there was a because of the beginning of their success, uh, Israel wanted to give them a lesson, so they massed 20,000 soldiers and intend to crush definitely the Palestinian. Uh, and then the uh, Fatah, and there was only Fatah, decide not to withdraw, even because they need a political victory. And even uh, they need a real political victory. And uh, it was that. It was the first time they resist, and the Israelis lost a lot of people and withdrew. And it was for the Israelis, it was a minor, it was a minor defeat. I mean, just nothing, a technical defeat. But for all the Arab world, it was a, a tremendous victory because all the Arab masses felt really in their heart that there was a possibility of uh, winning against imperialism, winning again. And that's why this date is so important. In fact, it shows all the originality of the Al Fatah's line and strategy. Now it said when you when the enemy attacks, you have to withdraw. And they knew at that time that they couldn't withdraw because they needed a political victory. Because the, the sound by Hollywood is the oppressed, uh, it's the oppressed tracks. There is, there is very rich image and very poor sound. For example, when the people are seeing uh, a movie like this one, they say, oh, the image is very poor. And we say, what is a rich image? There is no rich or poor image, there is just images. And that's why we, have, we are working much more, we are working much more on the sound for the moment. And we try to oppose, uh, to work together with image and sound and try to relate, to link each other, but not, uh, not just like that, to relate that in a dialectic, in dialectic, to oppose them in order to form a new unity, which is a, a movie. The movie, the movie is just uh, the unity, second after second, of image and sound on a screen. But what is a unity? A unity is not an addition of one thing to another, because this is no more an unity. One plus one makes two. We consider that uh, in one there is two things, two aspects, and this is dialectic, which oppose metaphysics. And the other thing is that as we, we discovered that an image was nothing more than an image and was not reality but something very abstract. We decided to build out of the screen, that means build out of the old ideology of the, the screening, the screen, to build the screen as a blackboard so that it will 
you know, be a possibility for people not to be stabbed in front of a film, but to, let's say, discuss. And uh, we can't do that only because the films are closely related to the problems that us and we, as political actors of, uh, of a revolution, are involved in. If we, if we success into making a film a, a blackboard and nothing else than that, like this blackboard, the, the place of the film is right here. But then it is your job, instead of being uh, to see this blackboard and to work on it, it's your job as a student not to be any more the same kind of student and so that workers can be able to come here. It's not to us to go to the factory because in a factory, there is no place for blackboard for the moment. So after this historical part, so this is the first part, historical part. And after that, through Karame, through the victory of Karame, we present the Palestinian, the, fight, the struggle of the Palestinian people as a new political and revolutionary fact in the Middle East. And this new political revolutionary fact is related to all the anti-imperialist struggle all over the world. We have to relate it because it's fighting Zionism, because Zionism has been uh, presented as an agent, just as an agent for imperialism, is backed by imperialism. So the Palestinian struggle is just a part of the general struggle all over the world against imperialism. It's related to Vietnam, it's related to Laos, to Cuba, to South America, everywhere. And we have to present it that way. But again, instead of giving just statement like there is no, there is only uh, Viet there is Vietnam, there is Laos, there is Cuba. We prefer just to show, to do it since we are doing movies, to try to, we thought of something, just let a Palestinian fighter look on a tape, on a videotape, on a screen, to some images of Laos, mm -hmm. for example, and just look at look at it. Because when the picture will be uh, shown in Laos, it will be the contrary. It will be the Laotian uh, soldier who, who will do the, the exact contrary, to look at the, on the screen, on a fedayin. And so there is a, the big, a very simple relationship without telling uh, anything. And, and then we have images of a Chinese, of a Chinese movie. And why did we put the Chinese movie there? Because to explain that, because China has already achieved yeah. what and the, the Laotian are still uh, yeah. struggling for. And the choice of armed struggle in their own situation, a reflection on the situation we have today, the split between the communist world into in two lines, the Russian line, which is a let's say peaceful line of peaceful coexistence, and the Chinese line, which is the real revolutionary, revolutionary line of armed struggle. And then after that we have to uh, link ourselves to the to the film as it is made to link ourselves as French militants involved in the class struggle in France, and that's why we show uh, some shots of uh, uh, the May '68 events in uh, in a factory of in a Renault factory near Paris at Flins, where there was the first emerging between the students and the workers and a very uh, uh, strong opposition and violent action against the police. Yeah, that was uh, to show different kind of struggle against the imperialism mm -hmm. in the third world where you have to go. So I hope you guys are understanding. They're talking about how China has achieved what everyone else is struggling to get done. Uh, 
Renault, just so you guys know, um, is a vehicle uh, manufacturer. They, I, I believe that they have, they have Peugeot with Renault. So Peugeot is the European version of Renault and Renault is also the UK version uh, well, in the UK, they have them um, of um, Volvos as well. I actually uh, had uh, purchased a Renault uh, once. So um, this is, you need to be paying attention to just how intricate this is, because I'm going to take you through time. This is just an introduction. So you understand as we watch the other clips today and listen to the clips, you will see just how all of this comes full circle and how important it is to be able to harness actual knowledge. You have to wonder why people try to cancel truth so bad when they claim that they are truth seekers. Because huh, they want to cut and rip out the tongue of those that speak truth. I can 100% guarantee you if Jesus was alive today, 99% of you would be canceling him. And that's fact. Because anything that preaches unity at a base, to understand that this is all about chains and cages you cannot see. People hate the truth because they know that they have voluntarily submitted themselves. As I said, Many people are rejoicing in the fact that masks are coming off. I actually knew that from the Best Buy guide. But the question is, they're doing one final push on vaccinations. That is one step away from the COVID passports. But that too shall pass. See, it wasn't happenstance, happen chance that the Department of Justice said, well, if you have fake COVID cards, we're going to prosecute you. Why? The CDC's a private company, isn't it? How is that something that the federal government's defending? Are you looking to implement it on a federal level? And why? How are you not prosecuting the administrations that are using our federal tax dollars to coerce people to make decisions about their health when you have prosecuted private entities for just the same. See, a lot of people think sharing shit on social media is going to get stuff done. A lot of people think that by stating these issues, that they're going to be spoken of. How many people out there that actually have some clout are talking about this? Two, maybe three. That's about it. And that's the problem. We didn't come back to this point in time. Let me rephrase that. It's all in your hands. If you think one person is going to change it, you are sadly mistaken. You have taken the education that they have dictated to you and embraced it. Those of you that expected some Gandalf with a staff to walk in and make it all good or wrong. Those of you that are very religious, God has never come down and said, oh, I'm going to fix this. God came down and said, you need to do something and get these people, you know, to, to see the way I will help you when it's imperative to, I will help you give them God proofs, but it's the people that have always saved themselves.
the unity. United, you are unstoppable. And this is a global unity. Yesterday, we raided a German channel and they expressed to you real truth. They're still in, uh, they're still locked down. These were musicians that did gigs, you know, and they were doing it on Twitch. Yeah, with COVID, we can't. And they were all happy that restaurants are opening on Monday, but only for those that have gotten a vaccine can go. Other than that, you're on lockdown. Now that can happen in Europe. It's a socialist union. You are allowing it to happen in the United States of America. And every single one of those fake ass truth fighters aren't telling you to keep pushing those emails, pushing those letters and holding your wallet as tight as fuck. You need to get it done. No one's going to do it for you. You need to get it done. If you're waiting for someone to save you, no one's going to save you. And you're going to die at your own hands because you were waiting. Now, I already know how this ends. I already know how this ends. And so do they. And they know that nothing can stop what's coming. Therefore, they are, huh, they have unleashed everything so in your face. Truth is not pretty. Nobody likes truth. Nobody. And if you remember the story of Soma and Gomora, some soldier angels came down to at least save the one person in that city that was worth saving. Right? It's your choice. Are you going to save yourself and be acknowledged as that which does not identify with it? Or will you be leaving the lust of mm, what this generation and this century has to offer and turn back and say, well, I kind of want that again. I'm going to miss TV. I'm going to miss railroads. I'm going to miss supermarkets. I'm going to miss my Starbucks and my pumpkin latte and turn around and turn to salt. Let that, I just want you to think of that. And I want you to pay attention to how impactful they believe that sound is. And this is why sound is no longer used. You can depict with pictures, a story. You can put it out there in picture format and stimulate someone and shape their reality. But the one thing you can't do is shift people's reality with sound. Sound is a naked frequency. Do you know, uh, let me see if I can find it. I'm going to, there's a science behind this. There's a science behind sound, but I'm going to look for this. I wasn't planning on, um, there's a song that makes everyone cry. Hold on. Let's see. I'm going to play a song and what you're going to realize is, is that the tone, the sound, 
instantly takes you to a place of serious sadness. And why is this? It's because frequency is key here. Frequency is what stimulates frequency. It's naked. You can't lie on a frequency. You cannot lie. This is why some music you listen to and it ignites you. Some music makes you move in your chair. Some music just moves you to want to cry. Like listening to the in the air night that I opened this episode with, you felt that. You could feel the pain being sung in that song. The lyrics are sad, but when it was put on a different frequency, it's happier. It's more empowered. But when you lower it and you play it like she does on a detone, that changes everything. Frequency is very important and they realize that. There's a lot of pictures and no sound. We need to figure out how to do the sound. Here, let's play this cover. Say something, I'm giving up on you. I'll be the one if you want me to. And anywhere I would have followed you. something I'm giving up on you and I am feeling so small it was over my head so frequency frequency this is why I don't like uh, to add video to myself because that distracts from the message. This is why I believe that listening to my shows on podcasts are a lot better because listening to someone, you can feel what they are saying. You can't disguise that. This is why actors have to, you know, make faces when they talk. And this is successful actors are able to tap into the feelings they're supposed to be feeling when they're delivering the words. They're saying A, B, C, D, but they're tapping into X, Y, Z to make that happen. You cannot change frequency. You have no control over that. That is a vibration of almost everything. Light is frequency. Sound is frequency. Yet, yet, light when it enters your optics, right? And it goes in, it comes in skewed. Did you know that? And it actually creates a chasm. So it flips and fills in the gaps. So everything you see is filled in with your perspective. But what you hear goes directly to the source, which is your thoughts. Your eyes can deceive you because you are able to see things with your eyes, but it's also married with what you expect. If you expect to see a cat 
and you're not wearing glasses, you would assume, for example, I'm in the parking garage and I see this figure, this animal figure, and I'm like, oh, it's probably a stray cat. Yet, because no one would expect a coyote in the middle of Cleveland, right? That would be so weird. Why would it be in a parking garage downtown? So you're like, hey, kitty, kitty, as it gets closer, it's a freaking coyote. And you're like, yeah, okay then. Because your eyes see what they expect until it comes into focus. Whereas your ears will never deceive you because your voice carries more of you than anything else. This is why I give so much emphasis to the music that I put out. And sometimes I play it again and again and again. Some people, I had emails saying, gosh, it's like I'm humming that I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to set a fire in your heart, in my head. And I'm like, yes, yes, because now you understand. I didn't want to torch the place. I didn't want to flip everything. I mean, I had to I, by putting all this stuff out. Didn't. It's about igniting you you know, getting that starter replaced in your car so you can get going. So today you're going to understand just a few things of what's going on in the Middle East by traveling in time. And this was an important focus. These are people that shape your reality through images. Turn it off. This is why I say those that walk in sight fail. You need to walk in faith and, you know, frequencies, tapping into that. I've stressed that many, many times. It can change how you feel. This is why they have all this experimental stuff. How many of you have been bombarded by Facebook articles, uh, advertisements, Instagram, and now even Twitter uh, saying, hey, you want to try out this new device? You put this on your head and it gives frequency and it makes you feel a certain way. That's part of the brain initiative. I would say, fuck that. You can hum yourself. How many of you have been in stressful situations at some point, and you're maybe in the shower humming a tune that you've never heard of, but you're just humming it. How many of you have cried yourself to sleep and found comfort in knowing someone else somewhere around the world is crying about the same thing you are at the same time? Frequencies. Hum to yourself. It, it helps. And music, like I said, folk songs, that's why they existed battle dances, right? To pump people up. I mean, come on. This is from times of yore. This is why music is garbage now. For example, let's go with, uh, you know, I talked about Yanni. I hope all of you listened to that prelude. Uh, it's quite amazing. It is quite amazing. It'll take you on a journey, but I highly suggest doing it in your car when you're bored and just commuting just, and you've got it you know, 10 minute commute, going to the supermarket, 20 minutes, whatever. That's a time that I would say it would be perfect. No noise, no people in the car, no talking, no distractions, just that. Cause you'll see how it'll tune into you. Music, sound, they're telling you because they want to show you how to think. Remember, because your eyes will fill in the gaps. This is why psychologists talk about filling in the gap, you know, the gaps. So if someone draws half a picture of a bunny, your eyes, your brain will just fill it in and you'll see the bunny, right? Well, with all the images that you've been bombarded with and all the texts and, oh, if you don't support Israel, you're an anti-Semite. If you don't support Palestine, you're a Zionist. If you don't this, you're a globalist. Stop. Let's pay attention to history now. Go on arms struggle in order to liberate your, your own country. 
a place where it has been done and they are still struggling struggling uh, uh, there is still a cultural revolution going on uh, ideological struggle and another place which inside the capitalist or imperialist country where there is of still the oppressed people which are fighting in a, on a completely differently conditions because they have no they have no uh, country to liberate for, for the moment I can answer you by quotation for once. Uh, uh, Marx said that uh, it's a remark of Engels on uh, old Marx uh, writing, and the Engels uh, just wrote uh, that uh, he reminded an old quotation from Marx saying that uh, the first class struggle, the first example of class struggle, was really the one between the men and women for people procreation. So you can uh, think about that. <laughs> and I think that uh, especially un unless we are liberated by women as men, as a movie maker, I will be in the impossibility of really doing something good and uh, with and for and for women. As a man I need to be liberated by the woman that's, that is to say, by the, the people I colonize in my own personal life. Good. <laughs> so this is a mere an introduction, and this is to place the anti-imperialist stuff is to play the struggle within the old fight against imperialist, and then we begin. The, with a real uh, Palestinian uh, situation and the or originality of the Palestinian situation. How, by thinking their own situation in a new way, uh, the Palestinians have to transform themselves so to carry on with the struggle. But it's how the re Palestinian revolution is thinking and acting in a new way. So that's why we begin the picture with a meeting, a popular meeting because this is a meeting, a popular meeting, is uh, the expression of the revolutionary will of the people. And this revolutionary will uh, leads to armed struggle. That means that the people's army is the expression of the revolutionary will of the people. Uh, the people's uh, army can only uh, live and continue to go on if there is a creative elements of the people inside the army. The army of the people can only live and go on if there is an effort in order to develop the revolutionary capacity of the people. That means political work. That means the creation and the organization of a popular militia with all its works. And after that, there is a conclusion if there is no armed struggle, there is no political uh, work. But if there is no political work, the armed struggle is just a usual uh, military, uh, usual military activity. So it means it's not really a people's war. If it's a people war, it means armed struggle plus political uh, work equal a long, a long popular war. This is very important because. Uh, they are always telling to the to the children, we we will not reach the sea. Uh, maybe you will not, but your sons will. 
you're the you're the generation of victory. So all this process is a process of fighting between the old and the new. In order to, to make a revolution in the Arab world, there is the Palestinian face and the Arab heart. And it's because of how the Palestinian face is thinking and acting that the Arab heart will beat in a new way, not in the old uh, traditional way. That is uh, to, to present the Palestinian revolution as, an, uh, as the advance and an advanced element of the whole Arab uh, Arab world. Because the, the concrete situation is those people are in refugee camps in countries like Lebanon, uh, Jordan. Uh, there is Palestinian all over the Arab world. Well, we think now we have to go back to France, but we wish we could have uh, done that uh, before. But the trouble then, even on my name, I couldn't raise any money anymore. And I had to go to go out in some kind of, we have to go out some kind of like uh, in an exile to find the money where, where it was in order to, even the, the, the very small money. And, uh, but in another way, in another way, we thought it was not really harmful and it could be helpful in that sense that, as uh, Chairman Mao said, uh, let the stranger help the national. First question was to ask ourselves, where are we coming from? What makes you make an image a certain way? The way the, the man on the, with the camera is doing it now. And to realize what was our own ideological background, so we can build against the art of the ruling class, a new type of art, revolutionary art. Not to say anymore to take a picture, but to produce and to build a picture and to produce a picture means that we have to know what production is that there is means of production and there is economic means of production and then there is ideological means of production what, what if he's a striker what authorizes me to take a picture of him he shall be able to produce a picture out of him do you feel you're pursuing an artistic expression or political expression in your films? There is no such thing as an artistic expression, political expression. It only can be an artistic political expression. I mean the problem, we're dealing with aesthetics as long as we're making movies. But we're dealing with a new type of aesthetic. But the problem is that you can't express a revolutionary content if you haven't got a revolutionary form. And you have to build it, to build it against a long history of the form, which is the ruling class form. The Art is not separated from politics, because who is running California today? <laughs> it's an artist, a Western artist called Ronald Reagan. That's the only one we wanted He's an to artist, deal with really. about political movie. If A.B. Hoffman or Jerry Rubin is doing a picture on the Chicago trial, with Groucho Marx in the role of George Huffman for Metro Goldwyn Mayer. It will just be a Metro Goldwyn Mayer militant picture. That means Metro Goldwyn Mayer picture. What can you say about the revolutionary struggle in America today? For Americans, what do you as Frenchmen, not part of America's culture, see that we can do to further the revolution? I, I can only answer into a very specific question. 
you have been asked to go to free to free Bobby Seal. So free Bobby. So free Bobby Seal. It's always a question of modality. How do you free Bobby Seal? The army is trying to keep him. That's your problem. You have been told this afternoon about it. That's your that's your problem. You are student here. I don't know if you have to pay to be here or if you are here through scholarship. But you have to examine what is your own situation and then to learn from it. Do you want to change it? Do you think it's marvelous? Do you enjoy the life? So don't change it and support Nixon. If you if you think you don't enjoy it enough, so free Bobby Seale. And then we go back again on a meeting. We begin with a meeting. But here at the beginning, the meeting, the meaning of the meeting of a popular meeting, meeting can only mean the revolutionary will of the people. Just a will, a feeling, a revolutionary feeling. But at the end, after having analyzed the armed struggle, after having analyzed the political work, to see a meeting again, you, we can call this meeting revolution till victory, because there is much more in it. And then we can cut with the meeting, the shot of the meeting, again the color we have seen in the very beginning. But this time, here, at the very beginning, the color is just a romantic, poetic uh, expression, you know, mm -hmm. the way I told you, peace, uh, death of the enemy, the blood. And here the color, the same color, as a political context, because of what we have seen in the two or three previous sequence. And on this color, we are expressing the political program of Elfata, the seven points of Elfata which are coming from the meet, from the real meeting, you and see, from, from the armed struggle, from the political, from the, from the people involved in the armed struggle and a political work. So all the process of this part is that you begin to show an image that we, you will take again at the end. They are the, more or less the same images, but in fact, if you look to the second one, it appears completely different because of what's in between all the work you've seen all the political work you've seen and in every sequence we are doing the same in the arm struggle we start from an image which is the Fedayin walking in the desert or in the woods right. to go in an, into an operation and we deal with that images one two three four four six times and we cut and we cut a simple images of what this walk really means Political. politically this walk means to start from a basis <coughs> to start from the country after that we have a fedayin answering to some question <coughs> fedayin where are you coming from and why do you fight and then again the fedayin walking the march long march and then a group of fedayin reading and uh, the, and then we hear the sound of a, of a political uh, commissaire speaking as speaking of Fedayin. Who are you fighting? The long march, the basis. What is a basis? The long march. What are you fighting for? The long march. Against whom are you fighting? The long march. How do you fight? The long march. How do you fight again? Which means. How do you organize your everyday life in order to fight the way you have just told? That means 
how the people, uh, in which way the people's army is different from a regular army. What are the, the everyday, how do you change your everyday life? We end, we end with uh, emphasizing about the red, mm -hmm. because just to, the red is both a blood and a symbol for women too. So we have to emphasize uh, on the red. But in, in the beginning, it was just red, blood. Now it's, it means revolution. So basically what you're seeing is that you're watching a movie. It is a movie. And I've said this many, many times before. Enjoy the show, but by no means not participate. I mean, even during movie night, we chat, we laugh, um, we talk, and we stimulate each other in the direction of a movie, right? You may be eating popcorn, but you're part of it. You're cast, like it or not, because you're not only the audience, but you're the target consumer. Because in order for consumer to voluntarily be consumed, they must indeed believe that they have control. So they've given you this fake feeling of control in everything you do. I mean, look, the communists love Reagan. They said, what better thing? An artist is in charge of California. Little did they know that they were going to throw him in the White House. And when he got in there, he was like, yo, this is not good. And one shot and he was put in place. And Bush Sr. had three freaking terms with Barr at his side. I've been through that before. There's two things that people need to be paying attention to. The only way you fight deception, manipulation, is by speaking truth. You have a barrage of people you listen to and follow and call them out. They're not doing anything to help you. They are part of the problem. You are the only solution yourself. If you're waiting for someone to tell you how this ends, I mean, I'm telling you how it's ends. In the end, God wins. But... How many of you will be on the winning side? Well, that's up to you. Are you going to be eating popcorn and believing one rabbit hole to another rather than realize that you are in control of everything and anything while everyone is sitting out there thinking that all this charade about stealing the election was about stealing the election? You're very misinformed. Stealing the election was a byproduct and business as usual, except for 2016 when they just couldn't use their fists. Because some people have been waiting. Some people were waiting for that exact moment in time. And just to show how Time Lords manipulate time, next week is going to be one of the longest freaking weeks you've experienced in the past three months. You watch. The longest. It won't fly by. It'll be Tuesday. And you'll be like, damn, isn't it Thursday yet? It'll be Wednesday and you'll still think it's Friday for like two days. Watch. Watch. How many times have I told you? I'm putting some concrete boots on now. Watch. Watch it happen. Just so that you can see it yourself. Those that are listening now. You'll see just how time will be put on pause this week. Completely on pause. Because you can pull that thread and yank it in because we need that time this week. We definitely need that time. So you'll see that. So let's go back in time. 
Let's go to, let me see. Should we start with, um, one thing I would say for those of you that are out running errands or whatever, there's a podcast up there called Middle East Edition that I've done with Buff Perry. I've met Yasser Arafat. Um, um, I'll just say you must see it. But let's listen to this clip. One second. So you can see where he... Well, that's when he took the suitcase. So, okay, take a listen. That your mass media, the Western mass media, always beside the Israelis. Your baby. Your baby in this area. Uh, and you are forgetting completely this uh, organized terrorism, even in the... Uh, United Nations uh, Security Council, you refuse to condemn this barbarian attack on the South, but you bless it. And you said that you, we accept the raid, but it was uh, a little bit uh, uh, more than required. I have uh, to ask those who used to speak about uh, human rights, where is this human rights there in this house? Did you see the picture there? Our camps, Lebanese villages, who had been smashed completely, some of it, some of these villages had been smashed with Phantom, with Skyhawk, with Mirage, with F-15, with cancer bomb, with Lancer, uh, Lance uh, rocket, with the Navy, civilian war, yes? Because it is your baby who did it. It is Israel who did it. So we moved into the south, also intending to kill as many as we can and destroy as many of the bases as they have, and then asked the civilized world whether they have a solution. Presently, there is a suggested solution that is in the process of, in the making. We'll see how it operates. If it's successful, very nice. If not, we'll have to take uh, into account the results. If the Palestinians remain south of the Litani, will you still withdraw mm. completely out of Lebanon? There are no Palestinians south of the Litani except in the Tyre area now. If they remain there, mm. will you withdraw right out of the Lebanon? We shall, uh, we shall withdraw when the United Nations forces take over and take responsibility that no military action is taken against us from South Lebanon. How long will it be, do you think, judging now before you are out of South Lebanon? I hope that as soon as possible. I hope that within uh, two, three, three weeks, a maximum of four weeks. But the PLO does not accept the principle of ceasefire against Israel. Moreover, Yasser Arafat intends to return to the South. For me, I can't say or I can't accept for ceasefire as they are still there in the South and I will continue fighting till they will withdraw from the South. That's how much, how pissed at the journalist and he's calling him out. Just look at how pissed off he is. And he's like, dude, what the heck? And you heard the other guy say, well, when the UN comes, then we'll go. Well, who made the UN in charge in 1978? I mean, that shit wasn't signed till the 80s. Will they be able to stop you doing what you want? Or do you respect yeah. their right to stop you? What's we your feeling about that? We have to understand what is the task of this United Nations uh, forces. It is to control the withdrawal of the Israelis from the South. Not to forget that our uh, exist uh, existence in this area 
due to an agreement or many agreements between us and the Lebanese authorities. It's very important. So we are there due to this agreement. And we have, according to this, it is our right to return back. You expect the So they had an agreement that was not honored. They flipped on an agreement. Okay. I see. Interesting. So now let's look at how these fake populist wars happen. And we're going to go. Let's see. Where is it? back into super back time. <laughs> we're going to go back in time into history. And we're going to see the Romans versus the Jews because this is important. The Jewish war and the revolt is so important. General Pompey led his legions into the land of Judea. For 100 years, Judea had been an independent nation. And many Jews believed that as the chosen people of the one true God, they would remain free forever. But it soon became clear that the world's greatest empire could not be resisted. The triumph of the Romans produced a crisis of faith among the Jews. For some, the only explanation was that the final battle between good and evil, the end of days, was at hand. They would soon see evidence for their belief. For the years ahead in Judea, it would be one of the most bloody and chaotic periods in human history. This is a story of terrorists and political assassination, of brutal overlords, who crucified thousands, and of the siege of Jerusalem, with over a hundred thousand people trapped inside. But it is also the story of how, amid the chaos, two new religions began to flower. Religions that would change mankind's ideas about justice, mercy, and God. Roman troops rushed into Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. They were unaware that they were about to meet the most extraordinary people they had ever tried to conquer. The defenders of the city retreated not to a fortress, but to the temple of their unique God to make their last stand. According to the historian Josephus, when the Romans attacked the temple, their commander, Pompey, was amazed by the behavior of the Jewish priests. Pompey could not but admire that they did not at all intermit their religious services, even when the temple was being attacked on all sides. Nor indeed, even when the temple was actually being taken, did they leave off the divine worship that was appointed by their law. For the temple priests, performing the rituals that honored their God was more important than life itself.
centuries, reports that the Jews believed there was only one God in the universe had fascinated the other peoples of the ancient world. And the Jews' temple in Jerusalem was famous far and wide for the amazing rituals the priests performed to worship their God. The Roman general Pompey was among those who was intrigued by the Jews' unusual religion. He was particularly curious to see what their mysterious God looked like. According to Josephus, as soon as the Roman general gained control of the city, he went inside the temple in search of its most sacred sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where the God of the Jews was reputed to live. There was nothing that affected the nation in all the calamities that they were under as that their holy place, which had hitherto been seen by none, should be laid open to strangers. For Pompey went whither it was not lawful any to enter but the high priest himself. Instead of the great statue of marble or bronze that he expected, Pompey saw nothing. According to the Jews, their God was so great that he could not be captured by an idol or any other man-made image. He was without form, timeless, and present everywhere. To Romans like Pompey, it was incomprehensible that the Jews would be so dedicated to the worship of a single God. Like the rest of the ancient world, the Romans had a huge pantheon of gods, but their most deeply held belief was that might made right. That conviction had won the Romans control of an enormous empire. To them, Judea was only a tiny piece in a great strategic puzzle. to Egypt. But to the Jews, Judea was the promised land given to them by God to be theirs alone. This clash of cultures between the Romans and the Jews would lead to a vicious and bloody conflict that would last 200 years. Even worse for the Jewish people, it was a conflict that would pit Jew against Jew as never before. The Romans come into power and it stimulates an immediate debate among the Jews about whether to revolt against them or not to revolt. And effectively, from the very beginning, there were group, Jewish groups that basically wanted to revolt and others which cautioned and said, well, we really don't need to go so far. So what happens is that these groups are vying with one another constantly in the period of Roman rule. With the rebels determined to revolt, and other Jews convinced that it would be insane to rebel against Rome, the people of Jerusalem could hardly have been more divided. Then the Roman governor, 
did the only thing that could possibly unite them. He ordered an attack on the temple. In 67 AD, Roman soldiers burst through the gates of Herod's temple, bent on plundering it. The governor was eager to steal the vast treasures of God which he held. And his soldiers killed all those they came upon as they forced their way in. Outraged at the attack on the seat of God on earth, rebels and non-rebels alike united to repel the assault. Then, in a fury, they overwhelmed the small Roman garrison stationed in Jerusalem and forced it to flee the city. With Jerusalem suddenly free of Romans, many in the city were seized by a giddy euphoria. The zealots' dream of an independent Judea seemed tantalizingly within their grasp. But others argued that more fighting could only lead to catastrophe. <laughs> A follower of Hillel named Yohanan ben Zakai was one of the most passionate voices for peace. At the risk of being targeted by the zealots for assassination, Yohanan told his students that it didn't matter who ruled Judea. What mattered was who ruled in their hearts. He argued that what truly pleased the Almighty was not zealotry at all, but something far simpler. The acts of mercy and compassion they showed to those around them. It seems that Yochanan ben Zakkai was part of the peace party. As far as we can see, there were numerous Jews who either because of their own closeness to the Romans, whether business reasons or other reasons, or simply because they were absolutely convinced there was no hope to do such a crazy thing as revolt against Rome, many Jews were really against the revolt. It seems that Yochanan ben Zakkai was one of those types of Jews who felt that what needed to be done was to get some form of accommodation from the Romans that would guarantee Jewish religious freedom and then leave things as they were with Roman rulers. But Jerusalem was not yet ready for Yohanan's vision of Judaism. From the steps of the temple, the zealots made a public declaration of war against Rome. Convinced they were mad, many other Jews decided to take up arms to stop the zealots. Fighting at this point broke out between those Jews and the rebellious Jews who had uh, taken refuge among them, and it was house to house at some point. Different neighborhoods would belong to one party or the other party, and the streets ran with blood. After a vicious week-long civil war, the zealots were victorious. They celebrated their victory by setting the city on fire. The zealots set fire to the high priest's home and the palaces. Then they carried the fire to the place where the records were kept and burned. Okay, so as you see, when they wanted to proclaim victory, what did they do? They burned cities down. And then they burned records down. Kind of looks like what's happening 
today. I want you to, to notice that this is all being reorchestrated. There was no reason back then to crucify a person who was preaching love and unity. They used blasphemy and considered him to be more dangerous than a murderer. It was all orchestrated. Just like the Ro Romans orchestrated new religions. The truth is there. Just people are reluctant to see it because they've been trained. Nope, nope. It's like this. Nope, nope. My pastor says this. Nope, nope. The Bible says this. Nope, nope. The Torah says this. Nope, nope. The Quran says this. Well, you just got to listen to your gut because they're telling you exactly who they are. They're telling you exactly what they've been doing for eons. This should bring it all full circle. Same practices, different era. Under the contracts it held, thereby dissolving all of their debts. This was also done that they might persuade the multitude of the poor who were debtors to join in their insurrection. News of the Zealots' uprising against Rome soon reached the nearby city of Caesarea. Outraged, Romans and Syrians in Caesarea massacred thousands of their Jewish neighbors. In revenge, Jews throughout Judea began killing Syrians and Romans living among them. It was common to see cities filled with bodies, still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with women and infants, all dead. The whole region was full of inexpressible calamities, while the fear was everywhere that there were even more barbarous times to come. The Romans were determined to crush the rebellion before it inspired others in their far-flung empire to challenge their rule. They dispatched their greatest general, Vespasian, into Judea to lead an army of over 60,000 men. Vespasian marched to the city of Gadara and quickly took it, for he found it destitute of any men fit for war. He then killed all the children. The Romans having no mercy on any age whatever. And this was done out of the hatred they bore the rebels. As news of Vespasian's atrocities swept through Judea, Jews throughout the region began fleeing before his army toward Jerusalem. When the Roman army finally reached the city, Josephus estimated that more than a hundred thousand people were trapped inside its wall. The Romans set up their camps in full view of the city in the hope that the mere sight of their military might would convince the people of Jerusalem to surrender. Their force was composed of three battle-hardened legions drawn from garrisons in Rome, Egypt, and Syria. They were armed with catapults, battering rams, siege engines, the fearsome weapons of war that had helped them conquer the world from England to Persia. But conquering Jerusalem was still a daunting challenge. The city was surrounded by not one, but three walls. 
which together were nearly 60 feet thick. And in the center of the city, the temple with its own massive walls and towers loomed as one of the most formidable fortresses in the world. But behind those walls, there was chaos. The city of Jerusalem during the revolt was, of course, under complete siege. Food and water were not entering, and inside, all the normal governmental institutions had broken down. They were maintaining temple sacrifice, but outside of the temple, there were all of these rebel armies. Actually, you know, there were about six that were controlling different quarters of the city and whose commanders were fighting over what to do. So you had really anarchy and fear, and as Josephus describes it, tremendous starvation. Inside the city, the catastrophe foretold by Yohanan ben Zakai was coming to pass. The zealots had begun fighting among themselves for control of Jerusalem. And when one band of zealots broke into the territory of another, they would inflict the worst damage they could think of, burning their rivals' food supply. They set on fire those houses that were full of grain and all the other provisions. And as soon as they were forced into a retreat, the same thing was done to them by the others. Accordingly, it came to pass that almost all the grain in the city was burned, which would have been sufficient to survive a siege of many years. With the food supply decimated, many decided their only hope was to flee Jerusalem. But the zealots believed God wanted the entire nation to confront the Romans as one. They issued an edict that anyone who tried to leave would be considered a traitor and executed. Um, in other words, those that decide that the only way to work is through military means. Um, and that was a scary time for all Jews in Jerusalem at that time because most of them were not zealots. As the siege wore on, the situation inside Jerusalem grew more and more desperate. Of those who perished by famine, the number was great, and the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a war began, and the dearest friends fell to fighting one with another about it. Soon, many people became so desperate that they were willing to risk death at the hands of the zealots. And so, they would creep out little-known doorways and gates to the city and gather weeds to eat. But outside the city walls, they risked capture and incredibly brutal treatment at the hands of the Roman legionnaires. The Nazi Holocaust of the 20th century has seemed to be a, an endless stream of ghastly stories, fiendish stories of, uh, of cruelty that seems to defy the, the human imagination. But there's an, uh, an appalling stream of such stories from this Holocaust as well. Uh, for example, as people began to attempt to leave the besieged city uh, secretly, 
when they were captured, uh, mercenaries working for uh, Rome would disembowel them, thinking that they might have swallowed gold or uh, or jewels, and that they were hoping then to you know recover these uh, after they defecated them later on. This is a not a strange or unusual practice in the uh, on the part of people fleeing during time of war. Guessing that this might have happened, they literally eviscerated these people uh, looking for the occasional ruby or, or gold coin. The Romans also took many of the men, women, and children they captured and crucified them. At the time of the siege of Jerusalem, thousands were crucified. The historian Josephus says that the hills around the city were deforested. So many trees were chopped down to make crosses on which to crucify Jews. Josephus also describes what I would call terror crucifixions. The city was still under siege, still holding out against the Romans, but crosses were erected on the hillsides around it so that people inside could see what awaited them if they continued their resistance. Forced to choose between torture at the hands of the Romans or starvation at the hands of the Zealots, the people of Jerusalem were in complete despair. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night seized upon the city. Those that were distressed by the famine were desirous to die, and those already dead were thought happy. It was the last chance for anyone hoping to escape alive. And yet, it was only the decaying bodies of the dead that the zealots would allow to leave. Then, late one night, a procession approached a city gate. It was a group of students carrying the body of Yohanan ben Zakai who had advocated peace instead of war. According to the Jewish book of tradition and law, the Talmud, the zealots were suspicious. Some of the guards asked, who is this? The disciples answered, a dead body. Don't you know that dead bodies may not be kept in Jerusalem overnight? Then one of the zealots decided to drive a dagger through the body. But one of the disciples restrained him by saying, Do you want to be remembered as the man who pierced the body of the master? So they opened the gate for the beer, and it left the city. The student's trick had worked. Outside the gate, Yohanan sprang up alive from the beer, on which he had been surrounded by rotting meat. Then he hurried away from Jerusalem. Yohanan was convinced the starving rebels could no longer defend the city 
or the temple. And he had decided that the very survival of Judaism was on his shoulders. After a four-month siege, Rome's legions finally broke through the first wall of the city. The zealots rushed to meet them and fought with tremendous bravery. But they could not prevent the Romans from fighting their way to the heart of the city, the temple. The Romans proceeded as far as the Holy House itself. Then one of them set fire. Now the Jews suffered nothing to restrain their force, nor tried to save their lives, since their holy house was perishing. The temple, the only place on earth, according to the Bible, where God could be worshipped, was laid to waste by the Romans. As for a great part of the people, they were weak and without arms, and had their throats cut wherever they were caught. In the temple around the altar lay dead bodies heaped one upon another, and at the steps going up to it ran a great quantity of their blood. In the history of the world, no nation has ever suffered such a calamity. The destruction of the temple in the year 70 was the greatest catastrophe and trauma to happen to the Jewish people, I would argue, until our own time in the Holocaust. It was the center of the economic life of the Jewish people, as if the Federal Reserve was housed in the temple. It was the center of the judicial life. The Supreme Court was housed in the temple. It was the center of the religious life as if the high priest was the chief rabbi centered in that building. And in a matter of hours, it was gone. When the temple was destroyed, everything was gone. There was no other branch of government because it was all invested in the priesthood and the high priest and the temple. With the seat of God on earth in ruins, the religion of the priests and their rituals was lost forever. How would Judaism and the Jews survive? So the war that we see has been happening for a while. So who's been doing it is the question. Who's been instigating these uh, wars again and again and again and again? Well, let's get to the fake manufactured news of the New York Times. Look at what they tell us in 2012. I want to show you this. What we're looking at is basically one of the five Iron Dome missile batteries. Its goal is to, as much as possible, intercept 
uh, rockets which have been launched towards the cities of Israel to intercept them in the middle of the way, in the air, in order to protect the people. כן, נופלים. אבל לא, גם מיירטים אותם, תראו. אני יודע. יש אבל פיצוצים, יש פיצוצים. הנה האזעקה. תבוא להוציא להם את האזעקה. בוא, בוא איתנו, בוא. בוא, בוא איתנו. וואי, זה פה, וואי, וואי, זה פה, בוא, 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 זה פה, קירי. זה הכיפת ברזל נראה לי, לא? וואי, וואי, וואי. לפני כיפת ברזל היה מה זה מפחיד, אבל היום אנחנו ממש בביטחון, אנחנו מרגישים וגם שומעים את הכיפה, בום, בום, איך היא מורידה אותם, ואחר כך יוצאים, רואים את כל הזה. It is very successful. We, I would say around 90% of the interceptions we wanted to make, we make, but still there is too many rockets running down here. Um, today only we had over 50 rockets already which hit uh, Israeli territory and the cities and the land wherever and we had around 30 something interceptions what I can say is it's first of all not a 100% solution it gives the people a better feeling but there's still rockets landing and uh, it gives the IDF you know, more time actually to, to target Hamas and Islamic Jihad infrastructure, terror infrastructure, in the hope to somehow, you know, impair their capabilities to stop hmm. this somehow. So they understand the difference between Palestine and between, um, uh, you know, the Palestinians and Hamas and Islamic Jihad. So they understand the difference, right? They do. Now I want to show you this. Israeli-Palestinian conflict could turn into an all-out war. Already dozens have been killed by rockets and a ground invasion could be next. President Biden says Israel has a right to defend itself even as the Biden administration hopes for a de-escalation of tension. We strongly condemn uh, the rocket attacks coming out of Gaza that are targeting uh, innocent Israeli uh, civilians. Uh, and Israel has a right to defend itself. Palestinians have a right to live in safety and security. Secretary of State there, Foreign Correspondent Trey Yangst in the region from the beginning, joins us live with the latest developments. Good evening, Trey. Brett, good evening. Breaking tonight, air raid sirens just minutes ago sounded in central and northern Israel. As Hamas says, they are now firing once again long-range rockets towards the Jewish state. We know today the death toll in Gaza rose to almost 60 people. In Israel, one soldier died and also a six-year-old boy. This is a major escalation by the factions inside Gaza. As behind me tonight in in the Gaza Strip, we have heard loud explosions. The Israeli Air Force targeting a number of high-rise buildings, a red line for Hamas and Islamic Jihad, the faction inside Gaza, who are now not only firing on Israel from the air, but also the ground. Earlier today, we know that Hamas used an anti-tank unit to fire on a group of Israeli soldiers that were sitting inside of a Jeep. All of the soldiers severely injured and one of them did die at the hospital. We spoke with the doctor that treated them saying that he believes Hamas is getting more advanced weaponry. 
inside Gaza, those high-rise buildings were really the major focus of conversation for the factions there that we spoke with today, who said in the coming hours, things would continue to escalate. Some of the missiles did slip past the uh, missile defense system, the Iron Dome today, as we noted, uh, killing that six-year-old in the town of Stirot. Also, we visited a site in the city of Ashkelon where a rocket slammed into a building. People came out bloodied looking for their loved ones. This is the scene unfolding here in Israel, again, as air raid sirens are going off tonight. So rockets are slipping past the Iron Dome. I mean, we have an Iron Dome. You know about that, don't you? We have one. It's called Star Wars. Reagan did that one. But I wonder how they're slipping past and what kind of weaponry they're getting. Well, let's go back in time to 2014 and take a look at the war at ground level. We went to 2012, shot over to 2021, and now we're going to 2014. I don't want to set the world on fire. Just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have but one desire, and that one is you. 